Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is Sparkles. It's an episode of the Sparks Literary Festival, and tonight we're going to listen to stories about noise called What's All That Noise? So listen up. We respectfully acknowledge the territory in which we gather as the ancestral homelands of the Beothic. We would also like to recognize the Inuit of Nunatsiavut and Nunatkavut and the Innu of Natasanan and their ancestors as the original people of Labrador. We strive for respectful relationships with all peoples of this province as we search for collective healing and true reconciliation and honor this beautiful land together. I just want to tell a quick story. When I was in art school in Stephenville, I had a very close friend. We were 17 years old at the College of the North Atlantic, and she brought me home to her big, giant family for the weekend for dinner. And she had 15 uh, siblings. I have one. <laughs> and the table was just covered in food. The table bowed under the food, and it was hunted and fished and foraged and uh, there were there was moose and rabbit and tur and salmon and trout and blueberries and baked apples and homemade bread and I had never seen a meal like that in my life um, and it was years later actually decades later before she told me that she was indigenous um, you know we'd been friends since I was 16 17 um, and she was part of her, and her family, and her parents were part of the Halibut Nation. And they applied for status, all of them. And half of her siblings were denied status, and half of them were given status. And it appeared to be um, a story that we're hearing more and more about, which was the uh, legacy of colonialism that touched down in people's families and hearts, and it's something that all of us, you know, when we give a land acknowledgement, can consider and maybe struggle to undo. I would like to take this moment also to thank Memorial University's Department of English and the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, as well as the Writers' Alliance of Newfoundland and Labrador, because this is a joint uh, venture. Um, I'm uh, particularly grateful to Jen Windsor from the Writers' Alliance and Nancy Pedri and Jennifer Lokash from the English Department. And of course, Angela Antel at the back there who is <laughs> creating a podcast based on the shenanigans we're getting up to tonight. And I'd also like to thank Chrissy Stocks and Sally Cunningham, who are graduate students at Memorial uh, for helping to create this project and get it up and running. You guys are fantastic. So here's what, what's happening tonight. We sent a call out to storytellers everywhere, a kind of competition that required them to submit about 250 words of a description of a story that they would tell. And we received whack loads of applications and we winnowed that down to a pile of just 10 stories. And um, I want you, audience, please, to remember that these storytellers have no notes, 
They have nothing written on either side of their hands. They are, they have no script. Uh, they may have practiced, I'm hoping, in the mirror. <laughs> but uh, these stories are coming straight from the heart. storyteller tonight is Ainsley Hawthorne. She is an author and cultural historian based in St. John's. Since earning her doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University, she's become passionate about translating academic research for the general public and challenging our, I, our received ideas about the past. She especially loves making the past come to life through a good story. She writes for CBC, Psychology Today, and other publications, and has edited the fantastic anthology, Land of Many Shores, Perspectives from a Diverse Newfoundland and Labrador, which was named one of the top 10 Newfoundland books of 2021. Thanks so much, Lisa. When my great aunt Gert was a teenager, she was awakened one night, sometime in the dark hours after midnight, by a strange noise. It was the sound of someone crying on her family's back stoop. Now, Sydney, Cape Breton, where she lived, is not exactly a bustling metropolis today. But in the 1920s, the nights there would have been long and quiet. Except that is when the workers at the steel plant were dumping slag. Slag is the waste that is separated from metal during the smelting process, and they had to dump it into water to cool it off. It was molten hot when they put it in the water, and it cooled so rapidly that it would make a bang like an explosion when they did it. For some inexplicable reason, they always did it overnight. So it was not uncommon in Sydney for people to be awakened in the middle of the night by explosions. It was so characteristic of the Sydney experience, they actually made a song about it. <clears throat> They're dumping slag over to the steel plant, dumping slag in the middle of the night there. Dumping slag over to the steel plant, go back to bed, mama, everything will be all right. <laughs> so, Anchor probably was used to being awakened by loud noises, but this was strange. So she crept out of the bedroom she shared with her younger sisters and woke her parents. But when they checked the backyard, they didn't find anybody there. When they put her back to bed, they probably tried to comfort her. They would have told her it was just a trick of the night. It was the wind sighing in the trees, or it was the sleep clinging around the edges of her mind. When she was awakened the following night, sometime in the dark hours after midnight by the same sound, she ignored it and tried to go back to sleep. She told herself it was a trick of the night. It's just the wind sighing in the trees. It's just the sleep around the edges of my mind. Because after all, seeing is believing. I don't think we have faith in sound to tell us something about the real world. Sound is ephemeral, it's transient, it's intangible. It's there and then it's suddenly gone. So. We do associate it, I think, with the supernatural and maybe even the spiritual. And what sound is more uncanny than the sound of someone crying? In so many cultures, it's associated with otherworldly beings. In Ireland, there's the Banshee. In Mexico, there's La Llorona. Both of them cry in the dark of the night. 
So why is the sound of sobbing so uncanny? I mean, grief is fundamental to the human experience. But I think most of the time, we don't hear people cry. I was at a funeral about a month ago for a very beloved man who died too young. Many people cried. In fact, by the end of the service, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. But I never heard a sound. I think that we feel like being heard to cry is too over the top. It's too raw, it's too personal, it's exhibitionistic. So instead, we cry silent tears and we keep our grief contained. Is it any wonder then that when we hear the unfamiliar and heart-rending sound of someone crying, it feels otherworldly to us? The third night, when Gert was awakened sometime in the dark hours after midnight by crying, she was prepared to go back to sleep until she heard a second noise. It was the sound of her father who was speaking to her neighbor. He was crying on their back stoop because his son had just been killed at the steel plant. The sound that Gert had heard the previous two nights was a forerunner. It was a premonition of this real event that was about to happen. The son was probably not much older than Gert herself. He might have been 16, 17, 18, and he was working what was called the back shift, those dark hours after midnight. The Sydney steel plant was a very dangerous place, and in those days there was no safety training. If you were lucky, some of the old timers might you know, take you aside while you were shooting the breeze over a smoke or while you were eating your ham sandwiches out of your tin lunch pails. They would have told you, keep your eyes and your ears open. Because unlike the rest of Sydney, the steel plant was very noisy at night. You had the inhale and the exhale of the furnace. You had the click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, click, clack of the iron ore carts coming up the rail. You had the boom, tick, boom, tick, boom, tick of the equipment all around you. And if any one of those noises changed, it could be a sign that you were in danger. Now, the family story diverges about how this young man's life actually came to an end. As my mother remembers it, he was caught up in the machinery, in the grinding and clanking of the gears. According to my uncle, he fell down the hold of a ship so that his life ended with a long silence before his body met the steel hull. And I wonder if he heard any hint of what was about to happen to him, or if it was only my aunt a mile away who couldn't do anything to help, who had heard the warning. And I wonder too if a few years later when both of her parents died, one after the other, if she heard a warning or if she and everyone in her family cried silent tears, keeping their grief contained. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank you Ains so much Ainsley. Ainsley. Thank you. That was beautiful. Next, we're going to hear from Sally Cunningham. Uh, Sally is originally from Vancouver, BC. She is a graduate student in the English department 
at Munn, working toward her MA in a creative writing thesis. Um, she's got her BA in English Literature at Bishop's University in rural Quebec, and her work has been published in Riddle Fence, The Meter, and Ascenti Magazine. This is her very first live storytelling event. All right, before moving here, I've been told over and over again, Newfoundlanders are the friendliest people you'll ever meet. I was so excited, but I moved during COVID into a house with roommates who are also from away. I'd been here two months and hadn't properly met anyone from Newfoundland. I had become well acquainted with the weather and was learning to cope with the wind. It's different, this wind that blows right off the Atlantic and through your bones. One way that I had found to deal with the move to this windy rock away from my family was to go thrift shopping. Every Thursday, I would go to Previously Loved. Their slogan, which blinks neon out front, is, if it's in stock, we have it. <laughs> Every Thursday, I'd drive up Kenmount Road and I would peruse the infinite coats and the cracked dishware. I'd go through blouses like dealing cards, metal racks squealing one hand into the other. Right in the back, near the teen books and the lamps, is my favorite spot watched over by a life-size cutout of David Hasselhoff. Not for sale. It's my happy place. One particularly bleak November Thursday, after a miserable class and my one roommate telling me she would trade me in a heartbeat for anyone else, I found myself sorting through sundresses and dreaming of fair weather days. Another woman was at the rack opposite, facing me, going through more glamorous gowns. Hangers screeched impossibly loud with every new dress she looked at. <laughs> she asked me if I'd seen the prices of the couches they had in stock. I hadn't. If I was starting a new place, I'd be in here. Look at those, quality too. Oh, nice, yeah, that is a deal. I can't see the prices from here, but I believe her. I go back to the florals in front of me, realize I'm browsing in the small section and lose another ounce of willpower. I shuffle down towards the larges and the mediums, closer to the woman. The dressers, though, they'll gouge ya, she says knowingly. Oh, wow, really, wow. I am bad at small talk. I'm bad at any talk with strangers. I want her to like me. I want her to stop talking, she continues. <laughs> I'm going to Edmonton. I won't be able to take furniture anyways. Oh, Edmonton is nice. I hear it's a nice city. Um, I'm trying to stay afloat, but could I be any more boring? I have a degree and a half in words at this point, and uh, all I can think to say is nice. <laughs> she picks up a dress made entirely of rhinestones with cheetah print holding the seams together. Very nice, I say. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Edmonton and see my sister. Well, have a nice trip. This could be my exit point, and I start to back away and make a game plan to go look at the shoes near Hasselhoff. <laughs> I'm going to Edmonton and I might not come back. Don't know if I can. I pause. Sorry? Uh, yeah, cause my husband. I don't know what to say to that, so I just wait. She picks up a dress that looks like a stained glass window threw up. Considers it. <laughs> the shoulder straps are made of little plastic chains. He passed away, she says. Oh, I can't leave her now, so I say, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She runs her hands over the fabric of the stained glass dress, tests the stretch. There's a lot of stretch. <laughs> he was in and out of the hospital this past year. It's, um, it's so hard to watch someone die when you're not even allowed in the room. I can't imagine. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
why can't I find the right words? What are the right words? We've just met. There's no handbook for this. I want to help her, and I don't know how. Yeah, I'm going to Edmonton. See my sister. And she puts the dress down with a clang and picks up a, a blueprint of paisley. I run my hands over the halter top of a yellow sun sundress in front of me. My daughter will have to sell the house. I can't go back in. He wasn't even in there in the last year, but still our house. I knot my fingers through the straps of the sundress. And she tells me that she was his nurse this past month, that she did everything for him. I say, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And the words feel way too small. She tells me she came in originally to look for a suitcase, but hadn't made it over to the back corner. It felt too real. There's a couple good ones in the back, I offer. Thank you, dear. Thank you. And she picks up the original rhinestone and cheetah print dress. This would look good on ya. And with that, she trundles away towards Hasselhoff. I wonder why she picked me to talk to. I wonder if she thought I was from here, or if I looked friendly. I wonder if that kind of open approach makes it easier and expected to be that open and genuine and honest in return. I wonder if maybe friendly Newfoundlanders is a misnomer, if it's just the closest word we have. I wonder and I hope that something about living here will shape me that way too. Maybe it'll be the wind. I go over to her side of the rack and I pick up the rhinestone dress. It's gaudy, rayon. A rhinestone pops off under my thumb and I watch it tumble to the floor and disappear under sagging hems. I carry it to the cache. Yellow tags make it half off. <laughs> and when I look around the store a final time, I see her bent crookedly over a scuffy roller suitcase. She kicks it gently. Something about this rock of an island makes us just leap into each other's arms. Thank you. just going to wipe a few tears away. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. Uh, next, we have Eldon Hussick. And Eldon says about himself, I was born in a country that no longer exists. A third of my life was spent in Europe, another third in Asia, and a final third here in Newfoundland. I consider myself a citizen of the world, and I do not recognize borders or divisions. I strongly believe in the universe, that it is taking care of us, and I am doing my best to work with it through my art, my writing, my music, and my life. I teach myself and others that love is better than hate. My desire in life is to find a way to turn that hate into love, and I'm almost there. Come on up, Eldon. I will tell you a story of another time, of another life of fear. After completing my elementary school as the most intelligent student of my generation out of 27 million people in my country, I had the second highest score. The person that was better than me played chess with me without using the board. Very, very beautiful school. It was a military academy, the most prestigious military academy in Europe at that time. My education was estimated to be at $60,000. My memorial university degree cost $44,000. Uh, it was a beautiful place. Unfortunately, every story has twists. 
And that's what makes it a story. That's what makes it more interesting. Without the twist, there's no story. We lived in these barracks, in this beautiful downtown of Zagreb, Croatia. And it was a huge compound. We had four, four years belonging in, in high school and four years of academy. Thousands of students, cadets, becoming new officers in Yugoslav army at that time. Everybody loved us. We were, you know, the best of the best. And then one night we became an enemy within our own country. And the people that surrounded us, all the friendly people, turned against us. They wanted to execute us. They wanted us to leave. We became the occupying force. I had no idea what happened. I was um, very young at that time. To me, rock and roll was more important than anything else, and some other things. Uh, unfortunately, since we lived in this huge compound, that was basically like downtown St. John's. You can imagine that if you live in a one million city, there are so many places that you can enter that compound to do whatever it is that you want to do. So our officer got us together and said, come this way. Okay, we have everything covered except for that gate over there. So we are going to take care of that gate at night for the time being until we figure out this little internal conflict, <laughs> which turned into a bloody massacre, as you know what happened in former Yugoslavia or what is happening now worldwide. Um, we were there and I remember his word, I have a gun, I will protect you. There were 60 of us there. It was supposed to be 140 that never showed up. And uh, we had one gun to protect ourselves against the Croatians who are about to like swarm into our compound and whatnot. And we had one place to secure, but since we were in the first year of education, we had no guns. Guns you get when you're second or third year. So the, op the strategy was, okay, when somebody jumps in over the fence with the guns and they're like going into this fucking compound, uh, you know, you have to say, stop. If they don't stop, you go, stop, I'm shooting. If they still don't stop, you go, stop, I'm shooting again. And then you can finally go back to the compound and say, uh, they're coming in and I cannot stop them. So that was our strategy. It didn't really seem so kind to me, but that was it at the time. And we had to put some people on the duty. So people would be there for two hours in intervals, and we followed the alphabet list. My last name is Husik. I was an H. That night, it came to letter G. <laughs> so I was in my room trying to get some sleep. None of us could sleep, obviously, because we are expecting an imminent intrusion and attack. But we're in our beds. I hear the phone. I was lying in my bed, it was 3 a.m. in the morning, it was dead quiet of the night. The phone rings and I hear, I can see this friend of mine answering and he says, yes, sir, yes, I understand. He puts the phone down and he stands up. Turns around and walks to the middle of the hallway and he's standing there. 
in the back of my mind, I can see him. I cannot physically see, but I can see him standing. If he turns this way and if he starts walking towards my room, he's going to come to my room, ask my roommate to put extra people on duty. And next, fuck. <laughs> so I'm waiting for that sound. And then I hear it, the sound of the boots going down the hallway. Dun, 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 dun. Sure enough, for a second I thought I was wrong. For one second, but I knew it, it was coming to my room. The boots came to my room, woke up my room and said, we're being attacked, we need extra people. My friend wakes up, goes to the list. Eldin, you're next. I froze. I just froze. And there was a spirit flying above me. I managed to say I can't do it. Disobeying a direct command, right? My roommate looked at me and there was another guy who got in all he said, skip him. That's all it took. My friend took a bullet for me and uh, you know, skipped me, went to another letter, chose other people, and the boots disappeared. Never forget that particular sound of the boots. The best thing about it that I had never slept better to this day the way I slept that night. <laughs> it was the most fucking beautiful sleep ever. I continued the war, I got you know through it and everything. But that night I was like, no, you don't have to do it. Somebody else will die for you. I fell asleep so peacefully, I dreamed I was playing music at the shipping. Some drums in Newfoundland, and my dreams came true. I became a rock star here in Newfoundland. It's amazing. Nevertheless, uh, thank you so much for inviting me here. My name is Eldin Husik. This is the story that I came up with on the on top topic of noise. Those boots that will never just, just like that. Dun, 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 dun. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was also amazing. Thank you. Uh, next, we have uh, Rashmi Harzarika. Uh, she is a graduate student of community health at Memorial University. She hails from the state of Azam, India, which is a beautiful land in the heart of the Himalayas. Writing poetry and short stories about people and Mother Nature is what she's passionate about. Please welcome Rashmi. Hi everyone, I'm Rashmi. And the story is about uh, my paternal aunt. In our local language, we uh, call our paternal aunt as Borma. She passed away a few months back. And uh, the story is basically about my childhood memories with her. So the story is Borma's bangle, a lost voice rather than a noise. Borma, the faint clicking of the bangles fill the old wooden house as she gently pats me back to sleep in the distant land of Assam, 
in the heart of Himalayas. The golden gleaming bangles, when clashes with one another, it creates the perfect melody of ting, ting, ting. Every day I could see the shadow of the pachait figure waits by the window pan, waiting for me to come back home as dusk falls over the valley. The melody of her bangles fills the whole house with the sound and my tiny feet follows her everywhere, uh, whether it's feeding the jack by the small pond or listening to the uh, stories of kings and queen of faraway land. I'm a bit nervous, it's my first time. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. After a decade, when I uh, return back home, her frail body gently lies on the ground. The light on the face of Burma slightly fades away, but the gleaming shine on her bangle still shines so bright. As she journeys into the unknown, all my broken heart could say, you are more than just ashes carried away by the wind. You are lullabies and stories of my childhood dreams. Thank you, Rashmi. You really brought us there to the Himalayas. Thank you. Beautiful. Next, we have Violet Brown. Violet lives and works in St. John's. Her debut novel, This is the House that Luke Built, will be published in spring 2023, which is very close, with Goose Lane. Yay, Violet. <laughs> Uh, she is currently working on a book of poetry about her mother. Come on up, Violet. Hi, guys. I'm Violet. I'm going to tell you a love story tonight, uh, but I will warn you that most all of my love stories actually have a component of horror to them. <laughs> Isn't that normal, guys? Um, my story is about the noise of the Roman church echoing through the hallways of the hospital as my mother lay dying. I hope it's a story about redemption. Uh, I had what was sometimes a difficult relationship with my mother, but the months that she spent lying there were filled with laughter and tears and lots and lots of healing. Uh, the book that Lisa mentioned that I'm working on now, a book of poetry about her, I'm actually going to take uh, a few, four small excerpts from that and share them with you as a single story tonight. Uh, the titles of those poems are um, Sacrificial Lamb, When You Run Out of Holy, Gurgle, and Let Us Pray. Sacrificial Lamb. My mother laid pieces of herself at my feet my whole life, and I kicked it away. That is not good enough, not clean enough, not pure enough. Look, there are scraps of pride clinging to that slab of flesh. When you run out of holy, you get down to the hard work of getting things done. The Hindu doctor is happy to help by telling the priest in his black shirt, in his white collar, and his pious prejudice that yes, 
These are extraordinary measures that can be removed without sin. And she whispers to my sister in the hallway, these measures did not exist 2,000 years ago. May glory follow you all the days of your life, but it did not. For months after the removal of these extraordinary measures, my, mo my mother lay in an adjustable bed in a body that could not move. Gurgle. Her death rattle makes me curl up in a chair with my fingers in my ears, run to the nurses looking for earplugs, curse the wide heavens, hold her in my arms, whisper the Our Father till her pulse disappears. Let us pray. This is the hard and holy work, bearing witness, bearing witness to the dismantling of self, the destruction of an able body that carried her through 87 long years of tribulation, torn down, torn down into evolving piles of smiling lips puckered for moisture, of a nose that needs scratching, of cheeks that need lotion, of hair that grows limp with sebaceous oil, of skeleton bones like wooden rulers under skin laying slack on her shins, of feet whose heels cannot hold out for one more day and turn black, coal black, of fingers still longing to make the sign of the cross, the sign of the cross. Nothing speared but an intact mind, an intact mind that is, that is, after all, a small part of who she is, her body leaving slowly, deliberately, delivering the message, delivering the message that we are powerless, powerless, marveling at a heart she always feared would betray her, refusing to halt its rhythmic beating like a murmuring rosary, rushing to get through the 10 Hail Marys to get to the act of contrition. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry. Like a metronome counting down the months, hours, minutes, long, long seconds into final nightfall on a Thursday afternoon, watching her destroyed, watching her destroyed, every ounce of her dignity poured into a depends that is whisked away by the angels in scrubs, standing by, standing by, watching her destroyed, watching her destroyed, every ounce of her dignity destroyed.
Thank you, Violet. Uh, Tracy Kurzberg is next. Tracy was born and raised in Cornerbrook. She has loved writing and storytelling for as long as she can remember, um, uh, but has only truly invested herself in writing over the last couple of years. She says, my first live storytelling experiences were with my daughters when they were young, and I would lie down with them at night and make up stories to tell them. In particular, I have always loved sharing and writing stories about my family, and I have a great penchant for all things both heartfelt and mysterious. My background is in social work, and I started working at the Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook in October, and I'm currently taking a second creative writing course at Memorial, and I'm a new member of the Writers' Alliance of Newfoundland and Labrador. My story takes place here in St. John's, actually. It was one of many times I've had to travel here for training for a different job or orientation for a different job. I've stayed at all kinds of different hotels, bed and breakfast, things like that here before. A lot of people here, I would assume, would be familiar with the Rennies Mill Road area, or at least know the building I'm talking about. They're historic building, and I was looking forward to staying there. So there's no elevator there, so I walk up the stairs and I go in uh, my room for the next three nights. It's beautiful. I walk in. There's tall ceilings, tall windows. Uh, there's a little fireplace. There's even an antique soaker tub. So I was very happy about that. I knew it was going to be a long three days of training. I knew I was just going to want to rest and relax in the evening. First, my first night there, um, I think I might have ordered in pizza. That was fine. I got my pizza and I sat down at the little dinette set in the room. I ate and all of a sudden the smoke detector goes off. Beep, beep. And I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like, maybe it's one of those oversensitive ones. So I start waving <laughs> and I get a towel and I'm waving and it's still beep, beep. So I'm like, oh my God. So I get up, I walk away and it stops. I go back. Beep, beep, starts again. I'm like, oh my God, like there's no smoke here, there's no heat. And I know I'm not that hot, so <laughs> what the heck is going on here? Creeped me out a little bit, but I thought, you know, I took a bed, uh, book to bed, big comfy bed, it was lovely. And I went to sleep, and that was the first night, you know, it was okay. Uh, the second night was truly bizarre and completely petrified me. <laughs> I finished work training or whatever for the day, and uh, I got in and I decided I'm going to use that soaker tub. So I got a bath ready, and I put my towel and my cell phone on the side. I'm one of those people who likes to surf the internet or play a song while I'm in the bathtub. Uh, so I had it all ready, I got in the tub, I'm soaking my muscles, it was great, and uh, anyway, I decided to put a song on. So I take my phone, and I go to look for a song, and all of a sudden, 
it just goes black. And I'm pressing buttons and seeing what's going on here. And then there's this black and white image starts to come on my phone. And the picture that appears frozen in place is the outline of somebody wearing a hood with a really creepy smile and holding a flower towards me. And I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, so I'm pressing buttons, nothing's happening, and this image is still here, and I'm trying to turn off my phone, and nothing will happen, it's just there. And, and I'm like in the tub. <laughs> so I was petrified. So I, I go out into the main area of the room, it won't come off my phone. I'm doing everything I can. I, I try, and then I think, oh my God, this is crazy. I'm going to try and screenshot it and show somebody. No, nothing would work. I walk underneath the smoke detector. Beep, beep, beep. So then I'm like, oh my God. But then I look at my phone. It's back to normal. Completely freaked out. Immediately call my husband. And... He even told me to go somewhere else that night and the next night. He had never heard me that scared. After I spoke to him on my phone, I could talk to somebody. It did calm me down, and I didn't have enough money to pay for two hotels. For I said, I'll just distract myself before bed, and I'll leave the TV on. And that's what I did, and it was okay. And the next night, I went out with a friend and had supper, and everything was fine. But I get up the next morning, and when I wake up, I'm feeling suffocated, and it feels like there's someone lying at my back, and like there's an arm around me, and I'm in the bed, and I'm like, oh my God. So finally I get up, and there's no one there, and I knew there would be nobody there, but there was someone there. Uh, I didn't feel threatened, it didn't feel evil or anything, I just felt a sadness and a loneliness. And I was totally starting to feel guilty then as I packed up to leave that day. I had to fly out later in the day. And, and I felt like really bad. I could just feel that loneliness. It was so strong. Um, but anyway, uh, so I, even when I left to go, I turned back. And I said in, in my mind, I'm really sorry that I had to leave you, but I have to go. And I, it was just completely bizarre. Um, I've never had anything like that happen. And that is my story. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Um, I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> There are other hotels. <laughs> uh, our next, uh, our next, I was going to say reader, but that's wrong. Our next storyteller is Bill Coltis. After spending 15 years at sea as an inshore fisherman, trawlerman, seaman, and Canadian fisheries observer, Bill made a right turn and became a television producer, director at Cable Atlantic, a local cable station. And after spending eight years at Cable Atlantic, he decided to form his own independent television production company, Springwater Productions. Over a 20-year period, he won awards regionally, nationally, and internationally. While semi-retired, Bill took two 
writing courses with the instructor, Lisa Moore, <laughs> at Memorial University. We'll see if he learned anything. <laughs> After writing several magazine articles, he won an international silver placement in the features category awarded by IRMA, I-R-M-A, the International Regional Magazine Association out of Los Angeles. Please welcome Whoa. Bill Coulter. Uh, my story is wrapped around the fact that I was a Canadian fisheries observer for 12 years, and basically what that means is that uh, if a foreign vessel come into Canadian waters, uh, like a Russian or German or Danish or whatever, uh, they had to have an observer on board. <coughs> I was assigned to a German boat, <coughs> and, uh, and they had a, a unique style, the Germans did. They basically had a, a huge fishery uh, factor freezer trawler, 200 people crew, and then they'd have three or four smaller trawlers that catch the fish, bring it over to the freezer trawler, and they'd process it. At any rate, uh, the license was for Northern Labrador and off Cape Chidley. I had to pick up a trawler here in St. John's. We, uh, <coughs> so we had to, three or four days steam to go to the north, and uh, the trawler I was on was pretty old, I must say, and I do know that uh, at the end of November, early December, the weather is not very good off Labrador. And sure enough, southern Labrador, we hit a storm. I'll never forget it because this vessel was really old, and every seventh or eighth wave, we'd hit it, and the ship would shake. Every time we should go, she'd go... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I was used to that kind of stuff, so it never bothered me that much. But anyway, we finally made it up to the north. I transferred from the small trawler to the large factory freezer trawler, and uh, that started from there. And um, so after three or four days, I got settled away. One thing about this factory freezer trawler is it's kind of an amazing piece of business because it's basically a fish plant floating. And uh, they got these, uh, these trawlers bringing fish, so 24 hours a day, load and go. No stop, stop on the go. And uh, so, after three or four days, like I say, I went down to the fish plant, <clears throat> I was kind of watching everything. And how it works is basically I was down in the fish room, and you know, up above you, there's a big bag of fish come aboard, and what happens is a large hydraulic door opens up, <clears throat> and up above is about 10,000, 15,000 pounds of fish, and when someone unties the knot, all kinds of fish. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Not that bad. <laughs> At any rate, so the process starts, and the fish goes up the conveyor belt. There's two other conveyor belts bringing it up to get processed. And uh, these little, small little gates would open. And then it'd go up on the conveyor belt there, and that's where it would be processed. Up to the second conveyor belt. And how it would work was uh, tail off, head off, got sucked out, tail off, head off, got sucked out, and then it'd go into water, and it'd be cleaned. Then it'd be put into a into a small little pan, then picked up, put into a freezer, and as quick as it went into the freezer, that forklift would take out another bunch of fish that was already frozen, 
It'd be taken out of the pan, dumped out onto a, dumped out onto a, a, a table, put into a kind of a pizza-like box, brought over to the scrapping machine, zip, zip, and put into a shelving unit. Another box, put in, over to the scrapping machine, zip, zip. And that's basically how it all works, right? Now, in the meantime, uh, I was there one day, and the foreman there was uh, a real stickler for uh, quality control, right? And uh, it just so happened that I saw this. One of the guys on the conveyor belt uh, uh, working away, he spit on the floor. Well, Buddy went apeshit. I said, Scheiße! 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 Das ist der Bund! Der Bund! And I said, well, Jesus, I was fucking terrified. <laughs> and I said, if Hitler has a descendant, this fucker is one. So at any rate, but that's not the focus of my story. <laughs> I'm just trying to get a lot of sound in there, that's all. That's the deal. And, uh, so at any rate, about a week later, I found me up on the, uh, on the bridge, 3 o'clock in the morning. You have to move your shift around and make sure everyone's... Uh, I've got to catch them off guard, make sure they're not breaking the rules. Anyway, I was sharing a cup of coffee with the first mate, and... Uh, well, I wasn't sharing a cup of coffee with him. He had his own. <laughs> at any rate, <clears throat> so he's telling me, Jesus, Wilhelm, they call me Wilhelm, imagine. My name is Bill, right? And uh, he said, we got a problem. Bag of fish floating out there in the dark, and we got to get it aboard. What we're going to do is going to put two fishermen in a zodiac raft, drop them over the side, and they're going to put a grapevine into it, and we're going to haul it aboard. Fine, that's good. Now, the bridge is five stories high. The Zodiac is four stories high. I saw uh, two fishermen dig into the Zodiac, <coughs> and uh, big David arms, they lifted the Zodiac, and the two fishermen out over the railing, like that. And then the next thing, they're getting ready to uh, drop the Zodiac down. And... Uh, <coughs> And uh, so the fisherman got on, and he started to get the outboard motor going. He goes, you! We all know this, don't we? God, thing won't start. He got her going. And the next thing, disaster struck. There's a cable from the Zodiac, cable from the arm, connected by a shackle. That snapped, and as quick as that, quick as that, the nose was sticking up in the air of the Zodiac. The stern was this way. And the two fishermen slid out like skiers on a slope, four stories into this cold, icy Atlantic. Right? Well, alarm, alarm. First man is gone. Man overboard, man overboard, I told man and body. And he goes, man overboard, man overboard. So a bit of a panic. Uh, next thing, they had a, uh, another zodiac go over. Buddy hopped in, just started to lower him down, and he's there. <laughs> Got down to the water. <laughs> Jesus, they let his lines go. The wind took him, and off he went, and he was going off in the dark. <laughs> Next thing out of the dark came another zodiac from another vessel, and they were paddling. They picked up the two men, and they got him aboard the zodiac, brought him aboard the cruiser car. <clears throat> 
And then next scene, they got the, the bag of fish, hooked it up, brought it aboard the freezer trawler. And it was amazing, you know, because after, after about <clears throat> 45 minutes, everything was quiet, you know. And I was there by myself. But in the background, I heard this ding, ding. I said, what the fuck is that? And I looked up, and here was the Zodiac, the original one that caused the problem. And here it was banging off the side of the boat like that. And I noticed the captain, he was looking down. I was looking up. He didn't see me, but I saw him. And I could tell on his face, he said, holy jumping, I almost lost two men, you know. I would have to make the call to uh, mom and dad saying, sorry, your son's died. You know, they drowned it. At any rate, he gave an order. The Zodiac was fixed up, dropped in the cradle, uh, into the cradle. And everything went back to normal. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. You brought that to life. Uh, our next storyteller is Michelle Clemens. Um, she is a writer and actor born in St. John's. She won the Arts and Letters Award in 2022 for her poetry. Play and screenwriting are her usual genres, but she switches it up when the narrative or her characters call for it. Her essay, The Christmas Stocking, was published in the Christmas issue of the Writers Alliance of Newfoundland and Labrador's e-zine. She wrote several plays for children's theater, Zoo and the Moose, for the children's theater, Zoo and the theater company, Zoo and the Moose, and she can be seen if you look carefully in the background of many of the local produ locally produced television series. <laughs> Michelle is particularly proud of her three words and scream in Astrid and Lily Save the World. This past fall and winter have been spent learning film craft at NIFCO and she is thrilled to have a first time filmmakers grant from NIFCO for her short film titled The Odds on That. And I will say that I knew Michelle in high school. I haven't seen her since. But when I walked in, I went, oh, I wonder where Michelle is. There's her daughter. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. Come on up, Michelle. That was very kind, because and I have white hair. <laughs> Arctic gray, Arctic gray, Arctic gray. So the title of my story is Murder on Millbank. <laughs> this is driving me crazy. Every morning, I'm woken up before dawn. Why? Because it is spring. Because there's a crow's nest in my yard, and because my husband left a cat out last night. <laughs> so what do I do? Do I incorporate it into my dreams? Do I do my deep yoga breathing breath, or do I nudge my husband and say, go out and get the cat? Or do I Google the incubation period of a baby crow? <laughs> the incubation period of a baby grow is 18 days and 30 days till fledgling. Lord, gentle redeemer, I'll be ready for murder by that. Sean, get up. Sean, the crows are going mad outside. Caw, caw. Can't you hear them? Sean, get up. 
Well, after a, a couple of questions and much confused conversation, my poor husband is out on the deck and he's calling for the cat, which is nowhere to be found. And the crows are calling at him, craw, craw. And he is making a ps, 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 cat noises, ps, ps, cat noises, which from him sound like ps, hiss, ps, 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 <laughs> and that never works. <laughs> The crows are cackling at him, and he decides he has one more move. He goes into the house, comes out, and starts shaking the cat food bag. And I leap from my bed and say, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. The reason why we have crows in the yard is because the guy next door feeds the cat cat food every day. Exactly, and I want to get rid of the crows. I don't want them setting up a condofocaminium in the yard. Well, the patio door closes, and then he comes up to the bedroom, and he says, I think I woke up the neighborhood. Shh, the window's open. Somebody might hear. He rolls his eyes at me, hops into bed, and turns his back to me. Well, I reach for my phone, and I find a romance novel to read and mentally book myself an afternoon nap. Well, the workday crawls, but the weather holds, so I grab a light throw and my drugstore romance novel, and I sneak out to my chair and settle down with dreams of honky men and tropical breezes. <laughs> and the sun warms my face, and I let my novel slip from my hand, and I can see the gulls soar silently above me, and I can smell my tequila and lime. And the gulls are just swaying in the, uh, up in the sky, and they start to die bound looking for food, and they go, who's hidden underneath my lawn chair, peeking out through the blankets. Not so brave now, are you, Zeus? I turn to the crow and say, leave my cat alone. What does he do? He just eyeballs the other crows and goes, gah, gah, and they take a dive bomb at me, me. Well, I've had enough. I scoop up the cat and throw him in the house and look back at the crow and say, hey, happy now? Well. Sure enough, they actually take to the sky and onto the trees, and there is silence. Oh. Well, my, my tropical romance and husky men have evaporated, and I'm now living in a Hitchcock film. <laughs> the last two weeks, I've learned a lot about mole crows. Do you know they're a social bird, and they live in large groups, large groups of up to a 1,000. And the group is called a? Murder. <laughs> I'm having hot flashes 24-7. My husband and I are in the kitchen and we're looking at the uh, cat out there on the deck and he's licking a long black feather. He turns his face to the trees and he gives a long, slow lick. And he, then he starts to clean his claws. And I go, oh my God, do you think he's actually killed one? You know, in the wild, you know, they swarm houses, right? And they, they kill rats and they carry off small dogs. I said, what do you think they're going to do to us if they're really pissed off? <laughs> well, anyway, that night, it's strangely quiet around our property, and I actually get a good night's sleep, the first in a long time. And the next day is July 1st, so we wake up and we go down to Remembrance Day, you know, Memorial Day for our Newfoundland soldiers, and afternoon of family and fun back at the house. We go back at the house. 
and the yard is in bedlam. There are crows cawing everywhere, and the, the, the Zeus, my cat, he's using the furniture to hide as barricades. He's dashing into the ferns and the overgrown hostas. Well, it is bedlam. My sister arrives with the vodka and cranberry juice, <clears throat> and she says, how goes the battle for Millbank? And I say, well, it's heating up. She says, well, it looks like the crows have brought in reinforcements. I said, oh, yes. Cat's doomed. <laughs> she said, well, he's called Zeus. Maybe he'll actually live up to his name. Well, it was a strange encampment at my house that afternoon. There were crows on the shed, on the house, on the fence, on the telephone wire. And they were keeping a really sharp eye on the 20 or so humans that were gathered around the yard. And uh, whenever the cat came out, the sky filled with black wings and my nerves were shot by this constantly cognizance. By the time seven o'clock came, well, I was in an adrenaline crash. My family, my friends left. My sister left me the bottle of vodka and said, good luck. Well, I just thought, one more drink, and I head back to my lawn chair. And I close my eyes and I go, I go, oh, New York, yes. <laughs> Times Square, mm. show tonight, yes. Bring! Hello? Michelle, the crows got the cat cornered in Church Square. There must be a dozen or more. What do you want me to do? Oh, well, as much as it pains me to say, he's got to fight his own battles. Leave it be. <laughs> I hang up the phone, look at my empty glass check my telephone app, my banking app, and mentally calculate the cost of a veterinarian bill. I wait about 20 minutes, the crows <laughs> flutter back into my yard, the three originals. And then I look around the corner, there's my cat. Oh, he came around the corner and he's carrying, what is that in his mouth? My God, it's huge. What's a rat? Ugh. He drops it into the grass, and then he looks up and meows at the fence. The crows flutter down and collect their prize. Well, I said, mm, that's some choice, Zeus. I said, joining forces with the uh, enemy against a common foe. Mm, I gotta say, I gotta admire that. Suppose you want to meddle, don't you? Well, he jumped up into my lap and cuddled up and started to purr, and I gave him a good scratch, right? This is not a reward, I'm checking for damages. Well, sure enough, he's pretty clean, except for a small spot of blood on his chest, which I clean off with a dab of vodka. <laughs> anyway, so it seems that the battle for Millbank, the murder on Millbank, wasn't my cat, it was the rat. Everything's safe, especially my bank account. Well, for now. Thank you. Michelle. Thank you so much. Our next storyteller, and we have just two left, um, is Joshua Gowdy. Joshua's writing has been shortlisted for the Newfoundland and Labrador Credit Union Fresh Fish Award, the Coffer Prize for Short Fiction, and in 2021, he was awarded the Newfoundland and Labrador Arts and Letters Percy Jane's First Novel Award. Wow. Yay.
This fall, his collection of children's poetry titled Where the Crooked Lighthouse Shines will be published by Breakwater Books. Come on up, Joshua. Growing up, my favorite day of the week was Tuesday. Because on Tuesday night, my parents would leave the house to go play in the community orchestra. And while my brother would use our unsupervised time to do whatever it is older brothers do, I would sneak inside my parents' bedroom, slide my mother's closet door open, and I would try on everything. <laughs> as long as I can remember, I've been drawn to women's fashion. The texture of the fabric, the colors of the makeup, the hairstyles, there are just so many ways to express yourself. Being a boy in central Newfoundland meant all I had available to me were straight leg jeans, boxy t-shirts, and baseball caps that said sports. <laughs> Every day was like being a Build-A-Bear assembled by a particularly unimaginative child. I grew up at a time when, for lack of a better word, feminine boys were still being talked about with whispers and sideways glances, meaning we learned that our behavior was something to be kept secret. It was the 90s, but still we seemed as new and confusing as Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> How did it get that way? Who knows? Maybe the people in the factory hugged it too much. <laughs> that is a stupid joke, but, but that really was the dominant view at the time. It was a common trope for TV dads to wince at the sight of their sons getting overly long hugs from their mothers, or getting involved in the school play, or playing dress-up. Now, around the same time, my mother formed a weekly women's art group. They met around our dining room table, and from my bedroom, I fell in love with the sound of their laughter. They were loud, so loud, their laughter didn't build, it erupted. And all night long, I would listen to these joyful explosions. It was the cork leaving the bottle. It was millions of bubbles effervescing inside millions of glasses of champagne. At times, the laughter seemed to shake the foundation of our home. They were expressing themselves, and they seemed so powerful. It was like there was nothing you could do to silence them, no matter how hard you tried. This was the sound of art and creativity, a sound I've long since associated with strength. Now, the noise emboldened me, and soon I wanted to express myself to the world. It wasn't enough playing dress up alone in my room with mom's clothes and magic marker nails anymore, no. I wasn't satisfied being a dull, boring Build-A-Bear. I wanted to build my own bear. <laughs> I started expressing myself and experimenting. Thank God white khakis were in fashion at the time because it meant I could dye them purple and yellow. I played around with patchwork, embroidery, fabric paint. Did I look good? Absolutely not. <laughs> Some days it looked like an Ardeen threw up on me. But, but I felt wonderful. All my life, it was like the world was moving to one rhythm and I was moving to another, just a little out of sync. The clothes didn't change this, but they helped me not feel so bothered by it. And I kept this up until a group of boys let me know they were tired of me moving out of sync. They cornered me in the school atrium and tore off my pants. And when the teacher on duty showed up, I thought it was safe till they joined in. And together they worked until I was standing in my underwear. I tried putting on a brave face. In my final act as a junior designer, I stapled what was left of my pants back together so I could get through the day's classes. I wanted to seem as powerful as the women around my table. I didn't want them to let them know they had gotten to me, but 
as I stood alone in my room holding what was left of my pants at the end of the day, I knew I didn't have it in me. I started wearing the straight leg jeans again, the boxy t-shirts, but I didn't just go back to hiding in plain sight, I retreated further. I toned everything down. I practiced speaking in a dull, monotone voice. I practiced laughing with a low, gravelly guffaw. I wasn't going to be the sort of boy that TV dads whispered about anymore. You do what you have to to survive. Now fast forward a few years and I'm living in downtown Toronto and somehow everyone looks different from each other, everyone is moving to their own rhythm, and yet no one seems to notice or care. I see men in sequins, I see men wearing vests with no shirt, I once see a man wearing a cardigan over a banana costume. <laughs> the only time I ever see anyone shoot another person a sideways glance, I'm on Toronto Island at Hanlon's Point Beach and a middle-aged man in an ill-fitting black suit shows up. He's got a red tie and a briefcase. It's 40 degrees, but he's walking across the hot sand in black leather brogues. No one says anything, but immediately the vibe changes. We're all staring when the man stops walking, turns to face the water, and starts heading out. He's up over his knees, up to his waist, up to his chest. We're all sitting up now because we think he's going to try and kill himself. And the next thing we know, he dives forward, disappears under the water, only to float back up a second later, bobbing on his back. You can hear his laughter over the waves. It's the cork leaving the bottle. It's the champagne bubbles effervescing. Naturally, when he gets back to shore, people want to know what happened. Turns out he retired that day and he was just so happy he never had to wear that ugly suit ever again. I leave Toronto and move back home so my partner can start a business. Things are going good, but I'm not happy. Not the way those are around me. I start seeing a therapist, and on my third visit, she says, it's like you don't let yourself find joy in anything. It's like there's a drill sergeant keeping you in line from inside your own head. Where does this even come from? Linguists use the term markers to identify the vocal characteristics that pinpoint you to a culture or a place or an identity. Your laugh, your voice, they say so much about you, and to lose them is to lose a part of your identity. Part of my therapy was learning to laugh again. So was filling my closet with silk sequins and silk and every color of the rainbow. I don't know if I made the right decision trying to blend in with the other boys as a young man, but I do know that it's not enough to wait for some imagined day in the future to start being yourself for retirement or a day that feels safe. We all get to say in the world we're building. So be kind, laugh loud, dress loud and build your bear however you want. Thank you, Joshua. Um, Bridget Canning is our last, but certainly not least, uh, storyteller. Her debut novel, The Greatest Hits of Wanda Janes, was selected as a finalist for the 2017 BMO Winterset Award, the Margaret and John Savage First Book Award, the NL Fiction Award, and was long listed for the Dublin International Literary Prize Award. Um, it is currently being adapted to film. Her second novel, Some People's Children, was a finalist for the 2020 BMO Winterset Award and the Thomas Riddell Award. 
In 2019, she received the CBC Emerging Artist Award with Arts NL. Her first short story collection, No One Knows About Us, will be published by Breakwater <laughs> Books <laughs> in 2022. She grew up in Highlands, Newfoundland, and currently lives in St. John's. Come up, Bridget. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, I'm gonna tell this uh, story in second person point of view, like you and yours, and the story also incorporates a bunch of other people's stories, because apparently I like to make things really complicated for myself. Uh, and it also takes place in 2020. Okay. The man at the door is about six feet from the stoop. You saw him ring the doorbell and take the time to step back for appropriate social distance. It's why you don't hesitate to open the door. He says, he says your name. Excuse me, are you Bridget? Yeah, that's me. Sorry, wrong girl. Then he's going down the street, making a beeline like he wants to get out of there as fast as he can. You shut the door and bolt it. You get your notebook and make sure to write down some descriptions right away. He was about six feet tall. He had dark hair, kind of thin in front. He was dressed in active wear, like a full tracksuit, red and white. Um, he had uh, white headphones around his neck. The tracksuit looked new, but his face looked tired, like maybe he's a heavy smoker and actually doesn't exercise that much. You make all these notes for yourself. And, you know, you feel like you're doing a good job being aware because if anything bad happens, no one can say that you weren't thinking about it. It's like that woman who almost got into the car with Ted Bundy, but she just saw that little spark of enthusiasm in his eyes. It was like, this is a bad idea. So you congr mildly congratulate yourself for being proactive. <laughs> you think probably it's a good idea to tell some of your, you know, tell some people what happened about this guy. Um, you know, I, you say to one of your friends, you know, I could see maybe if I had maybe a little bit of a more normal name, like maybe if I lived in Dublin and there was bridges every inch or so, like maybe that exists there, maybe that might make sense, but it just doesn't seem right. No, 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 it's totally creepy, she says. If someone was going around my neighborhood asking where people lived, I would, it would freak me out. When you tell your aunt about it, she tells you about the time a man broke into her house a few years ago. It was right after the, the spring thaw and they hadn't cleared out the backyard. They had two German shepherds. The man was not deterred by dog shit at all. He hopped right over the fence and tried to get into the back window. Your uncle saw him coming through, his face through the shear, coming through the window like to some kind of ghostly apparition. He screamed and yelled at the guy, but he took off. When they called the police, the cops said, this guy's been on the go for months. He's not deterred by animals or dogs. Uh, uh, he's brazen as brass. So they went out and got themselves a home security system. Um, it occurs to you that you should probably go through your social media settings, check, your, check what you know, is available to people. None of your contact information is available to the public, but you have taken pictures of the flower box in front of your house. You've taken pictures of the street outside after a snowfall. You reassess these things and take down any things. If someone really wanted to find you, maybe they could try to just figure out where you live. So you take down these photos. You pat yourself on the back for never posting pictures of other people's children. When you go out for walks, you look at you try to kind of keep an eye out for the man at the door. Suddenly you see like people are people are it occurs to you like uh, 
non-medical face masks are mandatory in public spaces, but people wear them outside more and more. And you think that's actually a really handy way to be uh, you know, in, um, incognito in public. You put on a hoodie, pair of tinted sunglasses, put on your face mask, you could be anybody, you could be nobody. Like the man at the door in the active where you put on some track pants, people just think you're out there getting your steps in. <laughs> when you walk through rooms in your house, you find yourself thinking what you could use to defend yourself. You pick up candlesticks and paperweights to test their heft. You could take a framed picture off the wall, throw it across the room like a ninja star, four corners through, at a rotation through space. You remember an interview that you once read between a researcher and a sex worker. The sex worker used to bring clients into her home. She had knives hidden in every room, under beds, in a secret pocket in the sofa. Maybe this is a good idea. It's cheaper than Bell Alliance security. That's her fucking shoulder. <laughs> you go out for coffee with a friend of yours you haven't seen for a while, and when you tell her, she talks about this time that she was stalked on a hike. She was walking along on a quad trail, and there was a guy on a dirt bike, and he drove back and forth and back and forth. He kept pausing to stare at her. She shows you a video that she took when she was hiding, crouched in the woods. The man parks his, his, his dirt bike. He gets off, walking around with his helmet down. He stops. He listens. He paces. He finally leaves. She says after that she started carrying pepper spray everywhere. But maybe that's why he kept his mask and the visor down in the first place, she says. And you have to agree with her. As you're walking back from coffee, you find yourself staring into cars, looking at people in their vehicles. It occurs to you so many people wear face masks in their car now, but so many people carpool, so that's one of the things you have to do. The thought of it makes, reminds you of a friend of yours a couple years ago, and he got egged on his way home. He says it didn't occur to him what had happened until right after the incident. He remembers hearing the car window come down, two homophobic slurs, two splats, yoke on his backpack, the, key, the car peeling away. You joked about it at the time and said, obviously, these people aren't responsible for buying groceries. You know how much that eggs cost? We're wasting a decent breakfast. The thought of it makes you put your own face mask on. You are wearing your winter coat. You are bulky. You are hidden. Inside your coat, you could be a twig or a truncheon. You find yourself moving in different ways. Can you disguise your gait? Would someone recognize you from a distance? You take larger steps, maybe move with a bit of swagger, take teeny tiny little kitten steps. How silent could you be? Could people actually hear you? The car pulls up beside you, and the man in the car <coughs> looks like the guy at the door. He has the same kind of haircut. But when he rolls down the window, his face is clean shaven and young. He said, excuse me, do you know where the nearest Shocker's Drug Mart or something like that is? You look, catch your reflection in the, in the side of the side of the car of the window. You are a shapeless form. You are eyes in a cold weather costume. There's something long and sharp in the back seat. Maybe it's an ice scraper. Maybe it's something else. You avoid eye contact with the man as you pull up the bottom of your mask. You spit on the ground. He's already cursing at you as you're Thank walking you. away. Thank you, Bridget, and thank you all for being here and listening to these stories. You know, philosophers say that uh, writing is just a vehicle for disseminating stories, but there's nothing like the human voice. 
nothing like the breath it takes to tell the story and the pounding heart and the fear and the joy and the laughter. And I think we saw all of that tonight. So thank you so much for being here and thank you to our fantastic storytellers.